If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me this morning to the Gospel of John. John chapter 15, as we are continuing our series on the I Am Statements of Jesus, we come this morning to really the, the last of the official I Am Statements of Jesus, and that's in John chapter 15, and we'll be reading this morning verses 1 through 8. And if you're able, I invite you to stand this morning for the reading of God's Word. This is part of the uh, upper room discourse. So this is the night before Jesus is crucified, and he's uh, continuing to speak to and to teach his disciples in the upper room. And he says to them, I am the true vine. I'm going to just pause there. <laughs> no, I just started. I'm not going to touch on this in the sermon, so I just want to get a little sermonette in here before I continue on. Uh, why the true vine? Well, throughout the Old Testament, uh, the people of Israel were referred to again and again and again as a vine, as a vineyard. God said, I brought my people out of Egypt. I brought them, I plucked them out, and I planted them in the promised land. I planted them in this good and beautiful land and made them my beautiful vineyard with the intent that they would become this fruitful vine that would bear glory uh, to my name and be a testimony to the nations. Well, they continually failed to be that beautiful vine. They became a degenerate vine. As the prophets say, they produce nothing but wild grapes. I planted you, wanted to produce beautiful grapes. You produce these sour grapes. And so uh, Jesus comes and he says, I am in contrast to the people of Israel who failed to be the vine that God had called and planned and intended them to be. I am the true vine, the authentic vine, the genuine vine, the true fulfillment of all that God had intended for his people to be. And so now we, as those who are in Christ, uh, can be the true Israel as well as we find our connection with him and our union with him as the true vine. So there you go. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself, it must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he's like a branch that is thrown away and withers. And such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given to you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. You may be seated. If you've ever done any gardening, as many of you I know have, you know that the main goal in having a garden is to get fruit. Maybe not quite that beautiful, but something along those lines. This is why you do all the work that you do as a gardener, right? You, you cultivate the soil, you 
you uh, add nutrients, you, you plant the seeds, you, you water consistently, you, you pull weeds faithfully, you, you even construct fences and, and put up those fake owls to, to scare away any unwanted critters that might damage or take away the fruit from the garden. You do all of this because you want to get fruit out of the garden. You want your garden to be as fruitful as it can possibly be. In our text this morning, Jesus draws on this garden imagery to describe the Christian life. And he uses the image of a grapevine throughout these uh, verses. And as you can see in the image, uh, a grapevine is a plant that's made up of, uh, like, like, the most fruit-bearing plants. It's made up of the main trunk or the main vine. Um, so throughout, when, when Jesus refers to the vine, it's that main trunk or that main stem. And then you have, of course, the branches that are attached to the vine and the grapes growing on the branches. So this is the image that would be helpful for us to keep in our minds as we listen to Jesus' teaching. Uh, some have said that Jesus re- is referring and said to it, not to an individual vine, but to a, a vineyard in itself made up of a, a bunch of vines, and that could be as well. Um, but this, this image gets at what Jesus is, is uh, describing. And with this image in mind, Jesus says that he is the vine and that we who follow him and profess our faith in him are the branches. And the main goal or the purpose in our lives as Christians then is to produce fruit. And what this means, especially in the context of John 15, is that our lives are to, are to demonstrate and to display more and more the likeness of Christ. So that in our attitudes, in our dispositions, in our ambitions and desires, in our actions and our interactions, we are to produce the fruit of Christ's likeness. So that when people look at us, they, they see more and more the likeness of Christ in the way we talk and the way we act and the way we relate to others and the things that we do, the things that we say. They see Christ in us. And so as we, we ponder these words of Jesus about the, the fruitful life, we see uh, uh, we can sort of organize our thoughts under three main headings or categories this morning. First, what we are commanded to do. And then secondly, uh, the implications of that command. And then finally, the, the word of grace behind the command. And by the way, I did preach on these verses uh, several years ago, so if some of this does sound familiar, I didn't reuse the, the, the whole thing, but there are some elements in this sermon this morning that have, uh, are drawn from that sermon from, I think, six years ago. So uh, we begin with the command itself. Uh, if we are to, going to, get, uh, to live the fruitful life that God intends, we have to remain in the vine. Uh, Jesus says, In verse 4, remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine, and neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Now, if you read these verses, uh, uh, this section of Jesus' teaching, there's one word, there's a bunch of words that kind of are are repeated uh, often, but one word stands out above all the rest, and that is the word remain. Remain. That is the, the, the dominant theme of this passage. Jesus says it again and again and again, and he uses that word remain 11 times in 10 verses. And so if we are going to bear fruit to the Father's glory, what Jesus wants us to know is that we have to remain in the vine of Christ. 
And the basic sense of that word remain is to stay or continue or abide or to dwell. All of those are, are uh, 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 legitimate and good translations of the word. Um, and when it comes to our walk with Christ, it refers to, and I, I love this expression because I think it captures it so well, an inward, enduring, personal communion. To remain in Christ, it's to nurture an ever-deepening relationship with Him. It is to continue in Him, to treasure Him, to make Him the center of our homes and the, the center of our marriages, the center of our affections, the center of our ambitions, the center of our worship, and the, and the center of our lives. And we can think of it a little bit, I think, like, like marriage. Maybe Ted and Donna could, could testify to this better than the rest of us who haven't quite made it up to, up to 55 years, but... You become married on the day of your wedding, right? At the day of your wedding, you are, you are married. You are officially, uh, legally, technically married. But that's really only the beginning, right? It's not like you get married and then on your wedding day, oh, that's that. Now we, what do we do now? Just kind of live our own separate lives and, and, and go on, you know, being this, this, uh, this married couple just the same as we were from day one? No. It takes ongoing effort and investment to grow in the communion of marriage, which means you have to spend time together, and you laugh together, and you pray together, you share with each other, you endure painful things together, you, you go through, you carry burdens together, and you sometimes fight with each other and argue with each other, and through it all, you get to know each other and love each other more intimately and more deeply. And I think that's a fitting image so hopefully by the time that you reach the end of your marriage, you can look back and say, well, I, I know my spouse much more deeply and intimately now than I, than I did then. There's still stuff that Lori and I, we feel sometimes like we know everything there is to know about each other, but we still sometimes surprise each other. There's always new things that we learn about each other. That's what it is to remain in Christ. It takes effort and it takes investment and it takes discipline. We stay vitally connected to Christ through time spent in worship and in prayer and time in His Word. And so we take the time to get to know Him better and to allow His life-giving Spirit to, to shape us and to transform us more and more into His likeness. I love the way Charles Spurgeon put it when he said, uh, you have a hard road before you as a disciple of Jesus. See that you don't go, he says, without your guide. You have to pass through the fiery furnace. Don't enter it unless, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you have the Son of God as your companion. You have to storm the Jericho of your own corruptions. Don't attempt the warfare until, like Joshua, you've seen the captain of the Lord's host with his sword drawn in his hand. You are to meet the Esau of your many temptations. Meet him not until at Jabbok's brook you have wrestled long in the presence of God and prevailed. In every situation, he says, you will need Jesus. Draw near to him. Abide in him. Remain in him. As followers of Christ, then, this is the command, the main command, the main means by which we are to live the fruitful life, and that is... We are commanded to remain in Christ. As Jesus continues his teaching, he goes on then to reveal some significant implications of this command to remain in him. And the first implication is really a very obvious one, uh, but I'm going to say it anyway, and that is that we cannot bear fruit if we do not remain in him. 
He says in verse 4, No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I mean, it's a pretty straightforward message and, and image, isn't it? If you lop off a branch from an apple tree, uh, and there it is lying on the ground next to the tree, that branch, it's going to be impossible for it to continue to produce apples. It cannot produce fruit if it is not vitally connected to the tree. And so, too, Jesus says we, we cannot bear fruit unless we, we remain vitally connected to him. And in case we don't get it, he says it even more forcefully than at the end of verse 5, where he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And, and there, there's, there's something here, by the way, that there, there's, a, there, there's a sort of a, a direct proportion, the, 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 how consistently, how persistently, and how uh, vitally we remain in Christ will be the proportion of the fruit that we are bearing. And so the more connected we are to Him, the more fruit we're going to bear. And if we begin to, to wander and drift and, and neglect time spent with Him, we're going to become less fruitful. But Jesus says that apart from me, you can do nothing. Which means you can produce nothing, of, not even an ounce, nothing at all of any spiritual value. Nothing of eternal significance, nothing of true Christ-like fruit if you are not in vital union with Christ. The only possible way to bear fruit to the Father's glory, to live any kind of fruitful life that is truly beautiful and good, is to remain in the vine. The second implication is that if we do remain, this is sort of the, the positive a way of stating, the, it's kind of the same thing as the first, but stated in a positive way. If we do remain in Christ, then we will bear fruit. As he says in verse 5, if you remain in me, you will bear much fruit. And the way it works is that the same life-giving sap that is in the vine flows into the branches to produce fruit, and so too with a Christian life. When we remain in Christ, the very essence of Christ is in us, producing Christ-like fruits, that what comes out of us in our lives and in our interactions and in our relationships and our words and our thoughts and our actions, what's going to come out is what is in us, which is Christ, which is why Paul is able to say, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. One of my favorite things about spring, and yes, spring is coming. It has to be coming. <laughs> Please tell me it's coming, although there is snow in the forecast, so... One of my favorite things about spring is when the uh, crab apple trees they, uh, begin to bloom. And every spring, without fail, the branches that appear to be dead all winter long burst to life with these brilliant blooms that bear new fruit. And with even more certainty than that, Jesus says those who remain in him will be fruitful. In him is life, John said, and to be in union with him is to have the very same essence of that life in you, bearing the fruit of Christ's likeness to the glory of the Father. The third implication is that if we don't remain in Christ, we are under God's wrath. Jesus says in verse 6, if you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers, and such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. We are all by nature sinners and deserving of God's wrath against our sin. And only those who remain in Christ are rescued from his judgment. 
Uh, John said it very plainly in John chapter 3 when he said, whoever rejects the Son will not see life for God's wrath remains on him. And by the way, I think uh, in the context again of the upper room discourse, the, probably the, the, the clearest example of this, of, of a, a branch that was in Christ, that appeared to be in Christ, that professed to be in Christ, but was not truly in Christ and therefore was cut off and destined for judgment is, is Judas. One of the twelve walked with him for, for three years and, and by all appearances uh, seemed to be a true disciple, but shown, showed himself in the end to not truly have a heart of faith and therefore is one of those branches that was destined for destruction and still under the wrath of God. If we do not remain in Christ, then we are still in our sin and under God's judgment. And Judas, for example, then showed himself that he was never truly in Christ. As the writer of Hebrews said, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The fourth implication is that if we remain in Christ, we have a stunning promise of answered prayer. Jesus says in verse 7, If you remain in me, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. And this is an echo of what Jesus had said back in chapter 14, when he said that uh, to those who truly believe, he said, I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. And again, we've talked about this before, but this does not mean that we can ask for anything that we selfishly desire and that we will get it. That's not what Jesus is saying. Uh, it's like the, I read recently about a little girl who sat down for a meal with her parents, and, and before the meal she prayed, and in her prayer she prayed that God would turn her peas into pancakes. Probably not going to happen. Uh, that's not the kind of prayer that Jesus is talking about. To pray in Jesus' name is to pray in accord with who he is and what he desires. It is prayer that seeks to, to bear fruit to the glory of the Father and the advancing of the kingdom. This is the kind of prayer that Jesus promises to answer. And so if we pray, for example, Lord, make me more Christ-like in my relationship with my wife and give me 55 years of bringing glory to you through self-giving love and service. Or if we pray, Lord, make me a more effective witness of the gospel so that you can be more glorified through my witness and others can be drawn into your kingdom. Or if we pray, Lord, make me more self-giving in my love for others. Give me a heart that is more and more humble and dependent on you. These are the kinds of requests that will be granted to those who remain in him because they are prayers in his name, prayers that are consistent with who he is and what he desires for us. And so we begin to see how much is at stake in this command to remain in Christ, what beautiful promises are in store for those who remain in the vine, and what dreadful consequences for those who don't. Remain in me, Jesus says. It is the only possible way to live a fruitful life. And so we've seen the command to remain in Christ. We've seen the implications of the command. And it leaves us then with the word of grace behind the command. Underneath the burden of human responsibility is the assurance of divine sovereignty. We see this word of grace in verse 3, right before the command to remain is given in verse 4. So Jesus says in verse 3, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. 
And on the surface, I don't know if you caught it when we were reading uh, before the the message this morning, reading the, the text, but on the surface, verse 3 just kind of seems a little bit out of place. It, it doesn't it doesn't flow all that well. It kind of disrupts the flow of Jesus' teaching, and it seems like sort of just this, this uh, something that's been plucked and, and just placed there, and it doesn't really seem to fit all that well. But I think the main problem with verse 3 is that there's a play on words in Greek that is lost in English, and so it, it flows much better in Greek, but it's really uh, nearly impossible to try to to carry that over into the English translation. And so I'm going to attempt to do it um, to try to preserve that word play. And so we can do it uh, by translating it in this way, and I'll, I'll kind of explain a little bit as we go. So here's a translation that attempts to preserve the word play that is very clearly there in Greek but not in English. So the Father cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, and here's the the translation change, he cleans through pruning. Now, the, the, way I would, the reason I would translate it's legitimate to translate it that way is because the Greek word there has a dual meaning. It means both to clean and to prune. So depending on the context, you can, it can mean either thing. And in this case, it could possibly mean both because pruning and cleaning are very closely connected to each other. When you prune a branch, what you do is you're, you're in effect cleansing it. You're cleaning it. You're, you're cleaning it of all the unwanted shoots or the extra shoots and the unwanted branches. Maybe there's a, a, a twig that's unhealthy. Maybe there's a branch that's growing the wrong way. And so to, to cut those things off is, in fact, to clean the branch. And so uh, Jesus says, well, every branch that does bear fruit, he cleans through pruning so that it will be even more fruitful. And then he goes on to say in verse 3, and you are already clean. And so now we see more clearly the connection and the flow between verse 2 and verse 3. And by making this clear connection between verse 2 and verse 3, Jesus is assuring his disciples of their identity in him, that, that they are the fruit-bearing branches. They have already been cleansed and justified so that their place in the Father's kingdom is secure. And so before giving them the command about what they are to do, he gives them the deep assurance of what God has already done. We do not become disciples by remaining in the vine. We remain in the vine because we have already been made disciples. You are already clean, Jesus says. And the basis for being made clean, he says, is because of the word I have spoken to you. In other words, the, and the word there refers to the whole sum of his teaching, the gospel message. In other words, he says, you have been given eyes to see and ears to hear the message of the gospel. You have received it in true faith. The seed has fallen on good soil. And so now my living sap is flowing into you and you are the fruit-bearing branches. You are already clean. And if we just ponder this statement, for this single statement of Jesus for a moment, we see how they are just dripping with grace. Because think about the context in which they were spoken and to whom they were spoken. They, there they are in the upper room. And Jesus is speaking to a ragtag group of disciples, to doubters and skeptics, to those who never seemed to really get what he was saying, to those of whom he said they had too little faith and too much fear, to those who would deny him. And, and while he was 
agonizing over the cross that lay ahead. They would argue amongst themselves about who was the greatest among them. And to those who would fall asleep when he needed them the most and who would run away and scatter when things got tough. It is to these, the, the flawed, the broken, the wandering, the wavering, the dull, the afraid, and the doubting. It is to these that Jesus says, you are already clean. You are the fruit-bearing branches chosen by my Father. You are what will make the vine beautiful to his glory. Not because you've earned it, not because you have chosen to follow Jesus, not, but only because you have been reborn by the utterly gracious work of God through the reception of his word, only because the word has fallen on good soil, because the spirit has made your hearts like the good soil. C.S. Lewis once described his own conversion as a dejected surrender to the God who hunted him down. A dejected surrender to the God who hunted him down. He was, in his own words, the most reluctant convert, convert in England. It is by grace we are saved. And it is by God's sovereign choice that he makes us fruit-bearing branches. So Jesus says to his disciples, you are already clean because you have truly received the message of the gospel. You've already been made into a, into a fruit-bearing branch connected to the vine. And it's out of this, this word of grace that the command to remain is given. We do not become true disciples by remaining in the vine, but it is by remaining in the vine that our discipleship is proved genuine. And so we got to understand this. The, the, the word of grace does not take anything away from the responsibility in our part to remain. But also the, remain, the, call, the command to remain is bolstered by the word of grace. So it leaves us then with a question, and that is, well, what is our response to these words of Jesus? Well, he gives a very clear, so he gives a very clear and pervasive command to remain in him. And this word of command is then based on this word of grace that we are already clean. So we have these two sort of elements. What is our response? Well, our response as Christians is to live in the tension. You see, if we focus only on the word of command, then we are prone to legalism and despair. If we focus only on the word of grace, we are prone to numbness and complacency. The fruitful life is a life that is lived within the tension. So we take seriously the command to remain in the vine while we are deeply assured of the grace behind the command. The grace compels us to persevere and the perseverance makes us more deeply assured of the grace. And so we do not settle for a complacent discipleship that stops striving to remain, and we do not succumb then to a performance-based discipleship that is constantly prone to fear of failure. We live in the tension. The fruitful life is a constant dance between the imperatives of obligation and the indicatives of grace. The commands of Christ drive us to grace, and the grace of Christ compels us, propels us back to the commands. This is the rhythm by which the fruitful life is lived. When our daughter Esther was just a toddler, I was uh, playing with her one day at a park, and there was a climbing wall at this park, and she had never done the climbing wall before, but she always wanted to give it a try, and this was the day. 
And she decided she was going to do the climbing wall at the park. I said, all right, start climbing. So I sent her up the hill, but like any, or up the, up the wall, but like any good, decent father would do, I didn't just stand there, right, and say, well, I wonder if she's going to make it. <laughs> Let's see how this turns out. I wonder if she's going to fall down. You know, go ahead, honey, make your way up. No, I, what, what would you do as a father? You climb up with her, right? And so that's what I did. I tell her to keep climbing, and I was right behind her, and I'm, I'm commanding her every, every step of the way, keep on going, keep on going, keep climbing, keep climbing. And when she would get a little timid and scared, I would encourage her and I'd tell her which step to take and point her in which direction to go. And of course, the whole way I had my hands like this, just poised, ready to catch her if she should fall. But the whole way up, I was giving her the commands, keep going, keep going, keep going. And when she finally made it to the top, she did so because she persevered. But at the same time, I was the father who was there making sure that she was going to persevere and was not going to do anything to allow her not to persevere and make it to the top. And so too with discipleship. Remain in me, Jesus says. Keep on climbing, continue, abide, dwell. And we strive and we strain to keep on climbing, knowing that the gracious hand of God is behind the call. Let's bow together. Oh, Lord Jesus, as we ponder these words of yours in the upper room to your disciples, words, Lord, that are for us as well, for all who truly believe and follow you. Lord, we hear clearly the command to remain in you. And we also hear, O oh Lord, the word of grace behind the command that we are already clean if we have a true faith in you and live under your lordship. We are already cleansed and justified and our place in your kingdom is secure. I pray, O oh Lord, in this time of silent prayers, you come before your throne, that, that you would teach us to live in that tension. If we have, if we have not been remaining, O oh Lord, then hear our prayers of confession and move us, O oh Lord, to remain more diligently, to spend more time in worship and more time in prayer and more time knowing you more deeply through your word. And, O oh Lord, if we have forgotten the word of grace that is behind the command, then lead us deeper, more deeply into your sustaining grace. Lord, hear our silent prayers this morning.
Lord, it is our desire as your disciples, as your followers, O Lord, to be fruitful branches. Lord, to more and more in our relationships and in our dispositions and our ambitions and in our affections and in our words and thoughts and actions, O Lord, to produce more and more the likeness of Christ in us. Lord, that's what we desire, to be more fruitful, to bear the fruit of the Spirit, that others may see Christ in us. And Lord, we know that the only way to be fruitful, the way that you intend and the way that will bring glory to the Father is to remain in Christ, to dwell, to abide, to continue, to stay, to persevere in our walk with you, Lord Jesus. So I pray that that you would draw us nearer to you, whether it's through storms and difficulties or whether it's through blessings and provisions. Lord, may we rise on wings of faith and at the end of our hearts testing, O Lord, with your likeness, let us wake. And may we bear fruit in abundance to the Father's glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.